Acts chapter 5. We encounter the issue again in this text, as we have in the last several, of the apostles versus the temple, and specifically the apostles versus the temple teachers. So we have Gamaliel, who's identified as a teacher of the law, and he speaks up something that is morally pretty shaky, actually, but that ends up in letting the apostles teach the gospel. Law teacher allows gospel teaching. The apostles, in other words, in this text, are proven to be the ones to lead and teach the people of God. So it's a a little bit of a longer story, but it's well worth it. Some classic tropes of comedy in here, as well as some obvious theological points about who is fit to teach God's people. Acts 5, starting at verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison publicly. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Then one in the council stood up. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word, your command to teach, prevailed over the Sanhedrin's command to be silent. Father, help us to listen and to obey you rather than human beings. Help us to pay attention to the teaching of the gospel that's continued on this morning in this place, just as the apostles did it so many years ago. Lord, give us the conviction and the courage to stand like them. Help us to listen to the apostles' teaching and to acknowledge them as the true leaders and teachers of Israel. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, this passage is framed with references to teaching. So you can see in verse 20, the command, go stand in the temple and speak to the people. And then in verse 42, they did not cease teaching and preaching. So they're told at the beginning, teach by God. And then, of course, they're told, don't teach by the Sanhedrin. The message is clear. Because Jesus is Lord, the apostles and not the temple personnel will teach the people of God. Not the temple personnel, but the apostles will teach the people of God. The teaching is banned in the first couple of verses of our text. The high priest, very upset, stands up and does something about this. He's the chief ecclesiastical officer of the temple, the highest figure in Judaism, and he stands up, sends out his team of thugs to lay hands on the apostles and put them in prison publicly. The message is clear. Stop it. Don't do this anymore. Let that be a lesson to all of you who are listening to this stuff These people are out of favor with the temple hierarchy. They're going to jail. And you all should watch and learn. That was the message. Don't teach. Don't heal. Don't make converts to Jesus. The angel, of course, comes and lets them out of the jail sometime in the middle of the night and says, no, go, teach, heal, speak the words of this life. That's how the gospel message is described. The words of this life. Words that if you listen will make you alive like Jesus. So when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Right, the issue is set up right at the beginning of the story. The Sadducees, the temple leaders say, don't teach. God through his angel says, do teach. And the apostles immediately obey God. Now there's something here for us to see. They had spent the night, or most of the night, in prison. They had been wakened early in the morning by this angel who let them out. Now I understand that Jerusalem is a small town, but it's still a walk from prison back home and so on. Sunrise this morning in Jerusalem was 5.35 a.m. Presumably these events took place around this same time, a month or two after Pentecost. 
Sun gets up pretty early in Jerusalem and the apostles were already there in the temple teaching. And if I had spent this night in jail, right, I would be heading for the shower and a change of clothes, stopping by my doctor's office to make sure I hadn't picked up anything nasty in the cell, having a little phone call with my lawyer to see if we could get anything out of the city of Jerusalem or the Temple Joint Powers Board, wrongful imprisonment lawsuit. And then I'd be taking a nap. But is that how the apostles serve God? They were put in prison, which is probably not the most comfortable place. They're awakened, say, one or two in the morning, have time to go back home, sleep for two hours, and then they're up and in the temple early. They entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Now, they're there, 5.15, 5.30. They're so eager to obey God that they don't say, that was a rough night. I think I can get to the temple around 11.30. They're there early. The apostles are fit to teach God's people in part because they work hard. They get after it. They don't say, oh, serving God is difficult. I had a tough night. Let me sleep in, Lord. Is the same true of us? Are we eager to obey God or more lazy in carrying out His instructions? So then comes just an absolutely classic comic scene. The apostles are all in the temple teaching in another part of the temple, which, you know, the temple is a fairly decent-sized complex, and you can't know what's going on everywhere around there. The Sanhedrin convenes for their morning meeting. When they call for the prisoners to be brought in, and the guards have to come in and report, everything looked normal, sir, but the prisoners weren't there. You don't want to have to be the guard that makes that announcement to the court. We have lost the prisoners. Hopefully there was a little bit of a titter from the gallery at that point in the proceedings. The Sanhedrin, they all wonder, what's the outcome of this going to be? They are looking at a number of alternatives immediately. Right? Either the apostles have corrupted our temple police force, or our temple police force is simply incompetent. And those are the two main naturalistic explanations. We have bunglers working for us, or we have traitors working for us. Probably didn't even take into account the supernatural explanation, which Luke gives us. An angel came and opened the doors in the night. The Sanhedrin is baffled. They lose the apostles. We have no idea where these people are. Part of me wants to think that the name of the captain of the temple guard was Maxwell Smart. The way that this scene plays out. Because they can't find them. They don't know where they are. And then somebody comes in and says, oh yeah, they're right here in the temple doing exactly what you told them not to do. That always goes over well, right? The Sanhedrin has been exposed as incompetent buffoons 
failures. We publicly put you in prison last night, and this morning you're right back at it. Right in the temple, too. Who has control over this temple institution anyway? Well, the answer is becoming increasingly obvious. So they lose even the ability to arrest the apostles because the people are in favor of them. The political capital of the apostles is such that you could put them in jail yesterday, you can't do that again today. Not going to happen. So the Sanhedrin is hemorrhaging credibility, hemorrhaging political capital. They've just been exposed as buffoons. Now they can't arrest the apostles. And the apostles actually willingly come. Sure, we'll talk to them. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest completely loses the ability to pretend that he's doing anything other than covering his tail. He starts with this high-minded stuff. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? It's about the authority of the Sanhedrin people. And then it becomes, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You guys are more successful than us. And then it becomes, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Right? They've lost the ability to pretend that it's anything but personal. You want to accuse me of murder, and I don't want to be accused of murder, so stop it. Just stop it. That's effectively the message of the high priest. Right, and the audience is sitting there saying, hmm, which one of these is fit to lead and teach the people of God? Which one actually cares about worshiping God? Which one actually cares about what's in the book? Is it this high priest whose main concern is to protect himself and his own reputation? Hmm. So Peter and the other apostles speak up and they say, this is not personal. We're not here because we have an anti-high priest vendetta. We're here because we ought to obey God rather than men. We'll talk more about that principle next Sunday. We ought to obey God rather than men. And so the apostles continue teaching. They didn't let a night in jail stop them. They didn't let being tired after that night in jail stop them. They didn't let being arrested and hauled before the Sanhedrin stop them. In front of the Sanhedrin, they continue testifying about Jesus. Peter gives the mini-gospel summary. God raised up Jesus. You killed him. He's at the right hand of God. He's giving repentance to Israel. We're witnesses to these things along with the Holy Spirit. You want to know what we're teaching? Here's a very abbreviated version. Here's the elevator version of what we have to say. Peter's response contains a lesson for us. If we're revolted by the establishment, and it's obviously self-serving, hypocritical, evil practices, right? That's the Sanhedrin, the establishment. They arrest the apostles and then they make it clear that it's a personal vendetta because they don't want their crimes exposed. 
If we're revolted by that kind of behavior on the part of the establishment, how should we respond? Well, not with personal vendettas. Peter and John responded by talking about Jesus and what he had done. Right? They didn't look around and say, I hate this Sanhedrin. This is the biggest obstacle to preaching the gospel that the city of Jerusalem has ever seen. They didn't make it about certain media companies, certain universities, certain centers of cultural power, certain politicians. These people make it so hard to preach the gospel. That's not where they took it. When they saw that the establishment was anti-God, they doubled down on preaching the gospel. Even to that establishment. They didn't get all bent out of shape. We're just trying to do a good deed for the city of Jerusalem. Why can't you just leave us be? No, it's the high priest and the Sanhedrin who make it personal. It's the Christians who say, this is not personal. I'm obeying God. I'm a witness. I know who I'm believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've entrusted to him. Right? The words of the hymn that we sang. That's where they take it. And come to find out that the establishment is anti-Christian. They don't get mad at the establishment. They say, we're witnesses. We're going to talk about Jesus, including to you. We know you don't like it. That's not the issue. The issue is whether we're going to obey God or obey you. Now, the Sanhedrin is all worried about their personal safety, their political capital, their power over the city, and their institution. The apostles have a lot less to lose. They really don't care whether they go to jail, whether they get beaten, whether they have somebody sitting in the high priest chair who's on their team. They care about being faithful to the mission that God has entrusted to them. And they recognize, the apostles recognize, that that very well could get them killed. As soon as the council heard this, they were furious and were ready to kill them. Verse 33. Peter didn't tailor the message to be one that the council would like. He told them exactly what he knew was going to make them ready to stone him. But that's because he didn't care what they thought, he cared what Jesus thought. So then the story takes an unexpected turn. Right? Typically in stories of these machinations, we would then expect the council to make an effort to kill them, and God either rescues them or doesn't rescue them. But instead, an ally appears from a totally unexpected quarter. Gamaliel, one of the most prominent, well-respected people in the assembly. The teacher of Paul, the grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel, well-known in Jewish circles. Within our own PCA, those of you who are familiar with our denomination, you know, a bunch of no-names will stand up this week and air their opinions on whatever it is that we're talking about doing. 
But what if some PCA royalty stands up? Somebody like Ligon Duncan, president of Reformed Theological Seminary. Or, hmm, what's another big name in our denomination? Kevin D. Young, author of many books. What if some of these people stand up and share their opinion? Everyone listens up a little more just because they know the name. They've read the books. They've heard the podcasts. They've seen the institutions that these people are affiliated with. Well, so it is when Gamaliel stands up. He's not some podunk delegate from somewhere out in the boonies. He's a famous rabbi. And his approach is totally different. He gives them the Gamaliel principle. Human movements will self-destruct. We don't want to fight God. If it's a God thing, it will flourish and succeed. Human thing, it will fall apart. And he narrates a couple of examples of failed movements. They weren't of God, and so they failed. Judas, the Judas, both destroyed. Now, he doesn't mention, though Josephus tells us, apparently both these guys were slaughtered by the Romans. So that's a little different than self-destruction, to be slaughtered by Romans. But regardless, Gamaliel doesn't mention this. He just says, look at how many failed projects there are. How many great empires languish on the trash heap of history? Do you really expect that this movement will continue on forever and ever if it's not of God? So how do we translate this? How do we understand Gamaliel's speech? When we first read it, we want to say, yeah, yeah, that's right, Gamaliel. You tell him. Let these apostles off the hook. Gamaliel's speech is actually a little bit shaky. It seems almost like a pre-modern version of pluralism. This idea that so long as we have religious neutral policies and practices, it really doesn't matter what truth claims are made. Anybody can claim that anything is true, and we can all go on living as though it doesn't matter in the slightest what you think is true. Jews and Christians and Muslims can live side by side at peace, all saying the other is wrong, and living as though whether the other is wrong couldn't possibly make the slightest difference to anyone about anything. Seems to be something of the vision that Gamaliel is projecting here. We can just endlessly defer the question of truth. Are they right? Are they wrong? We don't know. We don't have to spend any effort to find out either. We will just wait, and at the end of the day, those who are right will still be there. Those who are wrong will be gone. It's an easy, it's an easy criteria to apply. How do I tell whether this truth claim is correct? Well, just wait till the end of time. Then it will become clear whether it was correct. Unfortunately, what that translates into is we don't need to evaluate the apostles' claims. They say Jesus is alive. We say Jesus is not alive. It really doesn't matter. One day, one of us will be proven right. Until then... We can go on saying Jesus is not alive and they can go on saying he's alive and it won't make the slightest difference to anybody. 
The upshot, of course, of the Gamaliel principle is that the Sanhedrin doesn't need to embrace Jesus as Messiah. We don't have to decide whether they're correct or not. We don't have to evaluate their testimony in terms of whether it's factual or non-factual. We can simply say, well, go ahead and testify. Whatever. You're witnesses to something. We're witnesses to the opposite. No big deal. And so Gamaliel tells the Sanhedrin what they wanted to hear. We don't need to submit to God. As far as we're concerned, Jesus is not Lord. As far as the prisoners in front of us are concerned, Jesus is Lord. Doesn't matter who's right. Either his resurrection is going to destroy this temple or it's not. Doesn't matter who's right. If the temple fails, it fails. If the temple succeeds, then we're right. Now, obviously, Gamaliel didn't get into the full implications of his statement because even the Sanhedrin would have said, that's a little questionable. He just says, we don't have to decide now whether they're telling the truth. We don't have to admit that Jesus is alive. We can just postpone consideration of the question. So the outcome was to let the apostles go, right? Gamaliel said, let's handle this the same way state universities handle binge drinking. We're against it. God forbid that we should do anything that would seriously attempt to stop it. Let's handle this the same way the Denver City Council handles homelessness. We're against it. But again, heaven forbid that we think of doing anything effective to put an end to it. Now that is not what we expected from the Sanhedrin after they've arrested the apostles, after they've warned the apostles in the next couple of chapters, after they stoned Stephen to death. We don't expect them to say, no, we don't want to do anything that would seriously damage this movement. We'll say we're against it and then we'll do nothing to back that up. But that's where they went. What is Luke telling us? Well, at the very least, he's telling us we don't have to have God-fearing elites for the church to flourish. We don't even need consistency among our leaders. In fact, we might be better off with non-believers in charge who say, oh, the church is a bad thing. Let's not have a church. But then are too lazy to, you know, actually try to destroy it. That's more or less the upshot of the Gamaliel principle. Yeah, they might be wrong. They might be right. Not worth the effort to figure it out because it'll all come out in the wash. Not what we were expecting from Gamaliel or even necessarily from Luke. But nonetheless, it's what's here. The church doesn't need a perfect society to take off and flourish. The church doesn't need morally pure elites to take off and flourish. In fact, God can use morally and intellectually shaky arguments introduced in important places by people with a totally non-Christian agenda 
to give the church the room it needs to grow. Which is why Peter didn't have to come in there and say, in six months I'm going to be high priest. Then you'll see. But he didn't take it as his major goal to capture the temple hierarchy. To own the commanding heights of culture and education in first century Jerusalem. His goal was simply to say, I know something. I'm a witness. I saw Jesus alive and I'm going to testify to that and you aren't going to talk me out of it and you aren't going to stop me. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Kill me if you want. Peter's attitude was not, I must have political power immediately. And that's what gave him his power. He kept right on teaching and evangelizing Jesus. So did they all. They were beaten. They knew that that was a sign that the council wasn't serious. So they just kept right on doing what they were doing before. Daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In fact, they were happy that they got beaten because they were worthy to be shamed for Jesus. So law teacher allows gospel teaching. The angel says, teach and evangelize. The apostles teach and evangelize. Thus showing themselves worthy to lead the people of God. Luke is showing us, again, that everything we've heard about the kingdom is true. The certainty of what we've heard. What have we heard? Well, we've heard that the kingdom can flourish even with shysty elites. Even with bad people up top. The reign of Christ can spread and grow. So let's rejoice in that and, like the apostles, not be afraid to teach and evangelize that Jesus is God's anointed one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the advice of Gamaliel, not that we believe that it's perfectly correct, but that it gave room for your church to flourish. Father, we thank you in the same way for the modern ideology of pluralism, It gives room for your church to flourish. Father, we ask that you would help us, like Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, to keep the main thing the main thing. To not be obsessed with personal vendettas against those we see as harming your church, but rather to be interested primarily in going back to the good news about Jesus and how that changes everything. We thank and praise you for your word and the truth within it, in Jesus' name. Amen.